The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmilzer. And welcome again to the AI Today podcast. We are nearing our 200 episode mark. It has been a fantastic four years as we've been tracking the growth of AI across the world and across many different industries and applications. And, and we've had some really fantastic interviews. And if you've this is your first time, let's just say somebody's forwarded you this podcast and you're really interested in the subject because we have a great podcast for you today. I'm so excited by uh, our guest expert who we have. I'm not going to steal Kathleen's thunder as she introduces her, but I'm very excited by it. And we've had some fantastic interviews. If you want to hear how, say, Colin Angle from iRobot, you know, grew AI since the 1990s, or uh, Ben Gertzel, you know, with SingularityNet and Sophia Robot, or folks from Wells Fargo or GlaxoSmithKline, or from, you know, governmental agencies at the federal, state, local, and international level. You can even hear how the city of Oslo has put AI into practice. You know, we do encourage you to take a listen to our many hundreds of episodes that we have available, and please do subscribe to uh, AI Today in your favorite podcast platform. And for those of you that aren't aware, you know, this AI Today podcast is put on in support of the research that we do at Cognolytica. So we are an analyst firm. This podcast is really part of the way that we share with you our insights that we have learned from our market research, from some of our events that we run, and from, in general, a lot of the content that we put together. So we really encourage you to be an interactive community. We do want to hear from you. So if you hear something on this podcast and you have feedback, don't be shy. Please do send us a message or an email. You can email us at info, I-N-F-O, at Cognolytica, C-O-G-N-I-L-Y, T-I-C-A.com. And also check out a lot of our uh, analyst research that we have available. Much of it is available for no charge. And of course, there's a lot of premium content on there as well. But we won't spend any time on this podcast going over that. So thank you very much. And we are looking forward to our uh, guest expert today. Right. As Ron mentioned, we always love interviews because it helps bring different perspectives to our podcast. So we're so excited to have with us today, Joy Bonaguro who's the Chief Data Officer of California. Hi, Joy, and thanks so much for joining us. Hi, y'all. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here today. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them a little bit about your background and your current role as Chief Data Officer for the state of California. Sure. So I always like to describe myself as a four-legged stool, also known as a chair. And so my background actually... Um, got started in uh, data design and technology. So the first three legs of the stool, and that was um, designing and developing data and information systems in the um, city and parish of New Orleans, both pre and post Katrina. And what I learned along the way there was um, that the way we were developing those systems, if we grounded them in user needs and made them user centered, they could have high impact um, and, uh, they could reshape public policy and choices. And so really, I, I sort of came into the data world through the data democratization lens. And um, after, after working in that space for a long time, I found myself sort of disappointed by the publicly available tools out there and in the public policy setting world. And so um, became interested in public policy 
eventually, after many years, got my degree in public policy, um, where I sort of learned about the sort of social, economic, political, and legal frameworks um, for use of data and technology. And I brought that to the National Laboratory System, where I worked across the national labs um, developing technology, information security, and privacy policy. And then I took that sort of complex bureaucratic experience and brought it to um, the city and county of San Francisco as the first state's first chief data officer and really married my early work in data democratization with um, what had what emerged to be the open data movement and sort of took, not sort of, took over the city's um, open data program, revamped, overhauled that, um, and then also developed a a strategy and executed on it to improve use of data and decision-making, which eventually led to rolling out a program called Data Science SF, which was um, data science as a service using advanced um, statistical modeling and machine learning to answer questions that departments cared about. And then, you know, spent a little bit of time in the private sector and then joined the state of California approximately a year ago and have spent, you know, initially a lot of time on COVID response um, and then most recently launched the state's data strategy and I'm working to execute on that. Well, that's that's fantastic. I, I think sort of the general public is really understanding the value of data much more so than they did probably even a decade ago. And it's really kind of interesting because on the one hand, you know, uh, you know, people look to governments but at all levels to help with services and, and all that. But, you know, now that we're in this very remote world, right, you know, remote working from home and, you know, everybody's working from home and the kids are at home and everybody's at home, we're learning, first of all, the value of the Internet because none of that would be possible without bits on a pipe. But the other thing is we're learning about the value of data. We're paying attention to all these data dashboards, you know, whether it's for the pandemic or in Texas, they're looking at electricity generation. There's so much data out there, and to harness that provides a lot of value. And, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about AI and data, especially at the national level and, and organizations at the company level. We haven't really spent too much time looking at data at the state level and some of the unique challenges there. We've had a few interviews. Uh, we've interviewed Carlos Rivero from the uh, Commonwealth of Virginia and a few others. Yeah. But but I think, I think, you know, California is like a nation state. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the challenges around data at the state level? Sure. So um, as part of developing the statewide data strategy, I went on a listening tour that um, was actually focused on, you know, the internal challenges around data use um, in the state of California, with the sort of underlying theory that in defining the role of a state CDO, which, as you mentioned, in something as large and complex as the nation state of California, is sort of a tricky thing. What can a statewide CDO actually do? And I want to draw some parallels to the role of the CIO, which was, you know, new in the 90s, right? And so, you know, it's about 20 years ahead of where the role of the CDO is. So what I, um, you know, I mentioned part of my background is in design and design thinking. And so what I wanted to do in terms of structuring the data strategy and to legitimize the role of the chief data officer is make sure that it was focused on identifying in working to address shared structural problems across the state. So not the narrow problems of a single department or a single program, but what are consistently shared challenges? Because I think the role of a CDO is to unlock 
um, help unlock existing capacity and um, within within the state government. And it's less about be, a, becoming that capacity or um, getting in the way of that capacity, because the state, you know, in a lot of ways is is an interesting entity, right? Um, it has, I, I, ha- I classify it as having sort of three kinds of departments. It has researcher regulator departments like your EPA, where you actually have lots of scientists on hand who are doing advanced analysis and analytical work. Um, and so it's really about, okay, what's, what's making it harder for them to do? And they sort of propagate rules and then maybe there's a regulatory arm. Um, those, that's a very different set of data needs from a funder department. So at the state, a lot of our departments, they don't actually directly provide services. They fund local and regional governments that actually do the service delivery and often in turn fund as well. And so what is the sort of analytical needs and challenges for a funder department. And then the last department is departments that are actually providing services. Think your DMVs, right? They actually provide um, public facing and resident facing services and their data needs are slightly different. But some of the shared challenges were one, data access across departments is is a nightmare. It's, uh, it's labor intensive, it's manual. Um, we just don't have shared infrastructure. And so this really leads to Um, one of our core goals, which is we need to build the data roads. We need to streamline data access. Um, And so that's, that was the first core shared challenge. The second core challenge is, um, is that we're consistently inconsistent, right? So as you um, start to blend data across different areas to answer more advanced questions, if you can't blend the data consistently um, or in a predictable fashion, it's just harder to process and use. Um, and so that's where we need to sort of build out the rules of the road, right? So if we have the data roads, we need to make sure we're using stop signs consistently, speed limits consistently, um, and how this translates in the data world, how we're collecting and managing our data in a consistent way. Um, and then the third challenge was just, um, was the sort of human challenge, which leads to our third um strategic goal of boosting our drivers. So ensuring that we have the people power to do data well. And this really shakes out into a couple of things. It's ensuring that we have the right job classifications to hire the people we need indoor develop existing staff. It's ensuring that those staff have access to the right tools, right? (laughs) Um, Modern um, data as a service tools that they need and analytics as a service tools um, to ensure that they can do their job. Um, but then it also ensures it, it includes ensuring that um, staff across the management hierarchy know what analytical tools to use when, right? You don't just run out and use AI on every data problem, right? Maybe it's a simpler question you can answer. And so making sure from frontline to leadership to data teams, they have the right tools and conceptual understanding of what they should ask of and expect from data. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, I think that, uh, yes, this is at the state level that we ask that question, but I think that a lot of organizations and even federal agencies face similar problems. And so it's not, some things are maybe just unique on a state level, but in general, I think that, you know, data, as Ron mentioned earlier, 
people are becoming much more aware of this. And we were fortunate enough, if our listeners follow us on our other avenues as well, we were fortunate enough to have Joy and a few other chief data officers from various states participate at both our December AI and government event and also our machine learning lifecycle conference. And I'll make sure to link both of them in the show notes in case anybody wants to go back and watch them. They were really incredible and insightful panels. But, you know, moving with that theme of data, can you share your thoughts on, you know, some of the issues that you face when it comes to data, such as data preparation or data governance, things like that? Um, I mean, again, I, I to your, your comment, I don't think these are interesting challenges, right? They're just existing ones. So, you know, data, data preparation is often less of an issue than data access, right? So in, in part of the data access piece is complicated by a couple things. One, we might not have the data we need. <laughs> you know, I always, you know, we, um, with all analytics, we sort of work at, on data that is available at the expense of what we actually need, right? What's important. Um, but even in the context of when we know data is important, um, interagency data access can be quite challenging, right? And it's challenging for a couple of reasons. One, we have almost no shared data infrastructure at the state level. If there's data infrastructure, it's often within a program or a department, and then it's rarely at what in, in, in California is the agency level, and then there's almost no statewide data infrastructure, right? They're just, it hasn't been um, a focus. If there is statewide data infrastructure, it's focused in um, the GIS world, which I always note was sort of the original the original open data programs and the original data programs in government was GIS, right? There's always been this GIS role and this need to manage large complex data sets that have utility and a value across departments. Um, so in in that, so there's a technical challenge there um, in lacking that shared infrastructure, but there's also um, an ethical and leap, and these aren't even challenges. There are things, uh, challenges sort of the wrong framing you have to ensure that you're navigating your exchange of data is lawful. But I always say you have to go beyond simply lawful because a lot of our laws have not kept up. And so we need to ensure that our exchange of data is responsible and ethical as well. So, and then once you obtain the data, um, to me, um, the biggest data prep, data quality, those are always issues, but I've never found them to get in the like complete way of analytics. It's really bias and understanding the bias of the data and having a thoughtful approach for mitigating that. That's really important. Um, data quality issues, you know, if they're sort of, you know, I don't know the level of sophistication of the audience here, but if um, the data quality is, uh, for lack of a, is, is, you know, in statistical terms, normally distributed, or just, I'll just say, if data quality issues are random, it doesn't really matter. You just need to understand where your data quality issues are and go for it. And so I see a lot of people overemphasize the data quality issues and even overemphasize the consistency issues. And um, I don't think that should ever stop us from actually moving forward on an analytics project. However, that means you need to spend plenty of time in the exploratory analysis phase to really understand the data in the constraints that it imposes on you and then what you're going to do and compensate around those constraints. 
Yeah, I think that I think that's really key. I mean, it's kind of funny. This uh, this podcast is AI today, but we must spend like eighty percent of it talking about fundamental data issues. And I don't mean just data quality or data quantity, which of course are significant issues, but even things like methodology and dealing with people issues and process issues. And those things almost always get in the way of trying to do something more advanced. Because at the end of the day, a lot of what AI and machine learning are is just a form of doing more deeper analytics on our data, making our data do better things, more intelligent things, you know, deriving these amazing insights, trying to make our machines do more than just what we programmed them to do, have them discover those insights from the data. But of course, it all comes down to that data, no data sharing. Uh, it's only so much you, you can do. So I think that that's really, you know, fantastic um, insight. And maybe there's some hope here, you know, with all this attention and with all the CDOs now, maybe there will be some national, international, you know, multi-locational data standards. And by standards, I don't mean format standards. I mean process and methodology and and all that sort of stuff, which it sounds like there's already a lot of good work being done into uh, realizing that. So, I mean, have you seen any sort of efforts around um, standardizing the ways in which information is treated and and shared and even, even aspects of data pipelines and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of, you know, I, I ran the open data program in San Francisco and um, we actually use the open data program as a point of control for enforcing standards in, in doing data enrichment, right? So, you know, so every analyst in the city would get enriched data that was standardized and harmonized where appropriate. I always, I do, um, I want to, I always flag a note of caution, right? Um, when you perfectly harmonize data or you overly standardize, you actually, you drop data and you're making choices in how you shape that data. And so, um, instead of standardizing, I, I think it's more like you want to create multiple mappings, right? You don't necessarily want to lose the original data, but you want to have ways in which you can map in the tracing and the, the, um, the mapping of that is traceable to any standard. And so sometimes, and people really overemphasize standards early on, and I think people overemphasize the idea of um, replicating analytical use cases. And I, what I think is a, a perhaps better approach or one that I found great utility in is instead of focusing on replicating analytics projects and the sort of part of the intent of standardization is to do that, is to instead, um, and you sort of hinted at this, Ron, replicate process standards. So when we, um, I want to come back to something you said about doing analytics projects and the sort of organizational piece one of the things we did when we rolled out data science as a service, we very much paid attention to the, the program, the organizational context in which we were doing the analytics projects. Um, a lot of, you know, and I want to contrast this with, I'd have people come in they're like, oh, we did this analytics projects here and just give us the data and we'll do this fun analytics project. And that's not how we you know, approached it, what we would do is we'd actually do a bunch of, we actually developed a playbook called our user and research context playbook. So when we had an analytical project from a client, um, I'll get, I'll just give a specific example. So when we were um, developing a series of models for predicting um, the price of home sales in San Francisco to help with um, caseload auditing, uh, we actually, we sat down with different auditors um, in, in, 
in did observational active interviews as they were uh, assessing property sales in San Francisco. So we went and we sat in their cubicles and we sat with at least three different ones. One was a highly experienced um, uh, assessor who had been doing it in the in city and county of San Francisco for years. Another one was a, uh, you know, had had been assessor for a long time, but had worked in multiple counties. And another one was a newer um, assessor and still learning all the ropes. And what we were trying to do was essentially build um, a machine learning tool to help those assessors streamline their property assessments. So we spent a bunch of time actually sitting with them, hearing about how they did their existing process, understanding the screens and the tools they had to use. And so by, by getting all that context and seeing a range of methodologies, and then we actually user tested the analytical tools that our, our, our models spit out to see if they actually worked and we iterated on them multiple times. And so analytics cannot take place in a sort of vacuum. It, it's a hands-on, you know, messy thing. And when you're building an analytics team, you need, you need user researchers, you need process oriented people. And of course you need just analytics people in addition to data science, because sometimes um, you don't necessarily need to build and deploy a model. Right. And so part of the analytics life cycle is ensuring that you don't overbuild for your clients because they also need to be able to sustain um sustain the model, but also integrate it into their existing business processes and um, have that component of change management. Yeah, you know, that's great. And I think that people need to think about that team as well. And, and you know, what roles need to need to be there? And how do you, you know, balance the team correctly? So kind of following up on that, where do you you know, how can states and local governments, what can they do to attract that skilled workforce that they need to help keep up with these technological innovations? And maybe, you know, how do you see these roles maybe evolving and how can you also maybe not just hire, but also upskill and reskill the talent that you currently have? Sure. So, um, I mean, a couple different ways, right? So I think, (laughs) um, I think we actually have a killer, at least one or two killer selling points in government. Um, If you talk to an experienced data scientist or machine learning person, um, the problems they're optimizing in the private sector are actually often pretty boring. (laughs) And what you get in the public sector is you get one variety of, of projects, right? So you know, I mentioned us, you know, building models around property tax assessment. Another project we did was around, you know, uh, flagging artwork that should be prioritized for um, for repairs. Another one was predicting um, emergency recidivism, um, emergency room recidivism by people experiencing homelessness. Another project was predicting women who would um, drop out of the women, infants, and children program services. Another project was forecasting um, flights activity for San Francisco Airport. Another project was um, developing a, a set of a model and a concept of round trips and things for telemetry data coming off of vehicles. So I hopefully you're like I could go on and on about the range of projects. So the sheer range of projects. Um, 
was is it's just fascinating versus like optimizing you know the clicks right for or conversion clicks right so one thing i think range of domains and places to play is one and then second impact right these are um you're working on things that you see how and where they matter right and so i actually think those are great selling points for working on government and what we just need to do on the government side is um, assume that, you know, people who can go out and make 250, 350 a year, they're maybe not going to stay in perpetuity. Um, so setting up structures where people can come into these roles, um, they, but they can't do it in isolation, right? Like just dropping a data scientist into a world with no programmatic management around it will just be an unsatisfying experience. Um, so, so as the data leaders in government, you have to have a programmatic approach to sort of plugging these people in. On the development side of things, I think leaders have to do two things. One, they have to ensure that the job classifications support career growth. Um, so, for example, if someone wants to, you know, take a master's and do training or do a boot camp and move into more of a data science role, moving up from an analyst, not up, that's the wrong word, but moving, you know, from an analyst role into um, a, a, a data scientist role, we need job classifications that allow them to do that. And then secondly, we, as I said earlier, they need access to the right tools. Um, on the sort of professional development and training sort of side of things, um, I think you you should have curated and recommended paths to becoming that way. I don't think, you know, every not everyone wants to become a data scientist, right? And so it's more just about unblocking the path forward for those who want to have that career growth versus, you know, trying to make everyone into a data scientist. I don't, that doesn't make sense. And we don't need that many data scientists. Like we still actually have plenty of work around just instrumenting our existing data ensuring and ensuring we have an operational view of it. Yeah, that, you know that that is really interesting. You know, sometimes I like I like to to think about what life was like in the 1950s and 60s before computers were just so everywhere, right? And we're we're just like the average person understood technology. And it's like such a mind-bending thing to think about cuz like in the 1950s if you needed to produce a chart, just just a regular chart like a line chart or a bar yeah. chart or a pie chart, just think about what you would have had to you would have had to like get out your pen and paper, you would have had to like, you know, done some sort of, you would have to do the math yourself, so let's hope you didn't make any mistakes. And you have to be very, you'd have to know well in advance that you're trying to chart because you're like, if you're going to spend all those hours doing it, just imagine what like the the, the revelation that, <laughs> that something like Excel or Lotus 1, 2, 3 before that, or, you know, the, you know, VisiCalc, you know, goes going way back, what, what the revelation of spreadsheets were and charting was, it put the power, and, and that's not even intelligence, it's just the power of data visualization in the hands of just your ordinary, you know, person. Now we, now it's like, oh, it's like you sneeze and you can create twenty-five charts. You know, and now it's just a matter of what kind of charts do you want. And I think you know, maybe fifty years from now, we'll be kind of chuckling here, be like, oh, look at these folks. They're they're talking about how <laughs> data analytics was the purview of these specialized people that knew how to do it. You know, maybe in the future, you know, we talk about upskilling, which is important. But like, you know, maybe you know, kids going through going through elementary 
elementary school or high school will will learn the power of machine learning and, and know the skills of data science. And of course, the tools will, will be so integrated that maybe this will all become second nature. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe the path to the future is not about, you know, giving everybody complicated skills, but making these skills just part of everyday life. I mean, that's kind of a weird way of thinking about it, but, you know, something to think about. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, I always used to, um, you remember during um, the 90s when word processing software became widely available and people could um, use all different fonts and colors. And um, what we saw come out of that time period was a lot of bad design, right? Just terrible design choices. When you look at the early web, it was it's a visual nightmare. Um, when you, even nowadays you like walk along the street and you see someone's adorable homemade poster and they can just be, you know, terrible. Right. right. Um, and so with great tools, I guess, comes great responsibility. And so I think the difference between word processing and data tools though, is there is actual, um, statistical literacy and expertise and understanding that's really important to, to sit on. And so, um, so as statistical tools become commodified, as algorithms become services that you consume, and as we know this is happening, um, we also unfortunately need to remember the context in which those tools were commodified. They were commodified with clear sort of, clear, I'll say clear, because clear is um, perhaps actually not true, objective functions of what they're trying to optimize. And, you know, engagement, click-throughs, these kinds of things. In the public sector, the things that we are optimizing for or trying to predict are actually inherently much more complicated and very more. And so um, deploying those tools without firm statistical grounding and understanding um, is, I think, given... And this goes back to what I was speaking earlier about the ethics of, of data use is that needs to be done responsibly and with care and caution, especially given how we have seen a lot of these statistical tools result in bias against um, minority um, groups, people of color. Um, and, and so we, we actually... We might, maybe we'll get there, um, but there's also um, the way that these tools have been designed as these sort of clear and visible, you know, it's hard to reduce messy human stuff to like a single predictor, right? And so um, I do recommend there's a book called Human Compatible um, by, you know, someone who's more or less the father. He wrote like the book on AI um, back before AI was sexy. And um, he talks about the sort of limitations of our current approaches and our current methods. And I um, I won't even pretend to be able to succinctly summarize, but I just want to flag. All right, great. Yeah, you know, that's a book that our listeners can definitely check out. What was it called? Human Compatible? That's right. Okay, we will have to look that up. And give it a read if you haven't. So, Joy, you know, I want to thank you so much for participating in this podcast. We always love when we have interviews from from different people. And this one was a really great one. I and we always like to end the podcast with a final question because everybody's answers are so varied. And we love to hear what everybody has to say about this. So as a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to organizations, governments, and beyond? 
I think, um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's just another tool in the toolbox, right? I think um, we still need to settle down um, a little bit of confusion around it, right? Um, I think AI can be used for the purposes of automation. And then I believe it can be used as um, a subset of a set of statistical tools used in data science and incorporated into business processes and decision making. So I think... Um, as usual, we need to settle out the hype versus the actual and clarify that um, this is not, you know, I think something that bothers me about the conversation is that people are like, oh, this is a technology. And it's like, well, it's no more a technology than an author uses a word processor to write a book. Um, an analyst and a data scientist, this is just the tools of their trade. Um, it it can't be... Um, and like all tools, um, it can help, but it will not solve or be the core way of helping what are um, solving what are inherently complex political challenges on balancing of values and trade-offs, right? And so I think um, the, the sort of the big data, what do they call it? The hype cycle, that's finally sort of went away. I remember being like, yeah, sure, we have all kinds of different data. We don't need to obsess about big data. And now we've sort of learned how to manage that. I think um, the real focus is it's just another set of tools. Let's make sure we're using them responsibly. A lot of these core tools have kind of been around for a while. And there's some interesting differences unlocked by size of data and some computational methods. But none of that abdicates the need for the organizational management, change management, and leadership around improving public services that the tools can help but will not drive or lead. That's good. You know, I, it's funny. We have asked that question about what you see as the future of AI, and I think it's the first time we heard. I don't know, <laughs> which is a very fair, which is a very fair answer. It's a great answer because who who knows? We've asked Ben Gertzel. He doesn't. I mean, who, who who could see the future? If you could, then we'd all be doing other things with our lives. But I think this is fantastic. You know, uh, if you've enjoyed, just want to point this out. You know, Joy, you've been fantastic on this podcast. And if you're intrigued, you know, we had the pleasure, as Kathleen might have mentioned earlier, we had the pleasure of interviewing you as part of a panel. You're participating in this panel uh, at two places. First, at the AI in Government. We run the AI in Government community. It's a, It started out as a physical, in-person uh, meetup. Uh, but, of course, you know, in the remote world we're living in, it became virtual. But that made it even better better because now we can have like we can have literally a panel with four people in completely different states and it works and we did that we actually had a panel of chief data officers from uh three different states plus a moderator from a fourth state and that was part of ai and government and we had that that was actually a follow-up to uh a, a previous actually we had a panel that followed up with that uh, at our machine learning lifecycle conference that we did in january of 2021 so january 26th to 28th we ran the uh data for or, uh, sorry, machine learning lifecycle conference, and all these these con this content is all still available. If you go to aiingovernment.com, you can see the December panel that we had with uh, Joy and Adita Karakara and Dorman Bazell and Tyler Claycamp, who moderated it. They were gave lots of great insights about uh, CDO perspectives on AI, and then we kind of repeated that, but from a different perspective. We were looking at the machine learning lifecycle and issues of governance and other topics at our ML machine learning lifecycle. Conference at mllifecycleconf.com. 
And I just want to give our audience uh, some really interesting and exciting news. All of our conferences that we used that are all free to attend, by the way, and you can go there and attend them now, they're all becoming regular monthly communities. We learned from our experience with AI and government that if you can keep the momentum going, then you can keep these conversations going and we can continue to engage the community. So rather than having maybe just a couple days and like jamming 80 to 100 sessions <laughs> over three days, which is intense for everybody, we can just continue to have these monthly or regular, it's actually even sometimes more than monthly, uh, uh, communities where, where we, will sh we will highlight individual uh, presentations, whether they're presentations or panels or other sessions, and they're always going to be free to attend. So I would say to our audience, you know, join us at AIandgovernment.com, join us in dataaiconf.com, Join us in mllifecycleconf.com. I know it's got the word conf at the end of it, but they're, they're all going to become uh, these regular communities if they're not already. And we want you to be part of our community. And I think just on that note, I really want to thank Joy Bonaguro for being part of our AI Today podcast community. Uh, you shared some fantastic insights, and I think our listeners really got a lot out of listening to you uh, here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks so much, Joy. It's always great to talk with you. And listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes, including a link to all of the communities that Ron mentioned, our AI and government, our data for AI, and our machine learning uh, lifecycle community as well. So thank you for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolytica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyrighted by Cognolytica, all rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.